This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. Today, the Lesbian Historic Motif Project is delighted to talk to Olivia Waite about her new historic romance, The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics. Welcome, Olivia. Hello, Heather. Glad to be here. Why don't you tell the listeners a little about your brand new book? Well, The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics is about a lady astronomer named Lucy Muchelny and a widow, the Countess of Moth, Catherine St. Day, who's super into embroidery. So it's about art and science and women's place in history and a big, sweet, fluffy love story in the middle of all of that. So it's been really fun and I'm excited to see it's been getting some really positive reviews. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of buzz about it in my Twitter feed. I I haven't, I confess, started reading it yet myself, but I'm really looking forward to it. I tend to be very <laughs> backed up in my reading, I'm afraid. Oh, me too, I'm the same way. <laughs> So most of your books have historic settings. What attracted you to that genre? Do you you have a background yourself in studying history? Well, a little bit. I was a classics major, but I think what happened was I stumbled on historical romance really early on, like as a library reader and as somebody who was stealing books from my mom's bookshelf. Um, She and I used to read books together like much later than you would expect. Like I remember being 15 or 16 and she would still read books aloud to me. It was this kind of shared... like bonding thing that we would do and we would read the last book we read together was Jennifer Roberson's Daughter of the Forest which Ah. is that slightly steamy Robin Hood retelling yeah which is how I know how my mom pronounces the word horson so like you know (laughs) (laughs) it's very but um so I got really into Julie Garwood at the start and read a bunch of those and a bunch of like really classic historical romances And then in college, I discovered Julia Quinn and kind of that new wave of historical romance that happened in like the 2000s. And then it just was always something that I kind of was into. And I did like history. I was a classics major, so I was studying ancient Greek and Latin, which is actually really handy in the Regency because then you understand all the little Latin asides in the primary sources. Yeah. You get all their classical allusions, which is, you know, a whole essay on its own. Yeah. The whole genre is very comfortable for me. So... What was your inspiration for this particular story? What was the, the seed that grew it grew from? Well, it actually started as an MF back when Virgin Heroes were a thing. Uh, this was before I got published the first time. I was writing in a wide variety of genres. I was writing Regency romances. I decided I wanted to write like a younger Virgin Hero and an older Countess. And it was that whole setup where he needed to find a wife and she was going to help him and they end up falling in love. Uh-huh. And I wrote like a couple of chapters and set it aside. And then last year, uh, this was last January, this book started, uh, I wanted to read an Avon-style romance with two heroines. Mm -hmm. And I just kept looking for one, and I kept looking for one, and all the ones I found just weren't really, like, that sparkly, kind of shiny, like, straight-up classic Avon voice. Mm -hmm. And I just finished a manuscript, I didn't have another project, and I thought, well, you know, that old idea with, like, the scholar and the countess... 
if I made that FF, that's kind of exactly what I'm looking for. And I thought, I'll just work on this until a more marketable project comes <laughs> along. And then I actually sold the book before I was done writing it, mm. which was kind of amazing. Uh, but I think what happened was I just started writing a thing that I wanted to read so badly. And everybody else thought, oh, yeah, we want to read this too. And it became kind of a big snowball of a thing, which is... Yeah, I had so much fun writing it, and it just became this whole place where I could put all these thoughts that I had and questions that I had that I hadn't been able to work into my other work. Uh-huh. So that's where the astronomy came in, and I'd been teaching myself embroidery, so I did a lot of a lot more research on that. And the next thing I know, it's just this whole exciting big step forward for me in my writing, and it just it just felt so good and so nourishing, and I think that's really reflected in how the book turned out. Uh-huh. Now, you're not the only author I've ever heard talk about having a, a male-female plot and then saying, hey, this would work better with two women. Mm-hmm. What, was, what were the, the tricks and um, you know, difficulties with doing that? Well, one way that writing FF romance in the Regency is a lot easier is you don't have to worry about chaperones, like, at all. (laughs) Yeah. You don't have to find excuses for the maid to be elsewhere, or, gosh, it's so shocking when we're alone in a parlor or whatever, and and one of the challenges that I gave myself to kind of counteract the fact that that was suddenly easy, that they had an excuse to just, like, spend hours and hours hanging out together with no supervision, I said, okay, well, the rule is, though, you can't do any ballrooms. So this whole three-book series, there will be no ballrooms. There may be, like, an assembly room dance at one point in book three. (laughs) But, like, no ballrooms, none of that easy, like, comfortable aristocratic regency stuff that I'm used to. I'm really trying to stretch. I'm trying to, like, look at stuff that I haven't really explored before in my work. I've done little bits of this. I've had heroes and heroines with jobs and skills and training, but this is the time where I'm kind of letting all of that off the leash and going in a very nerdy direction with this. (laughs) And so once you take some of the propriety elements out, what other kind of structures and what other kinds of conflicts can you have? And it it really opens up a lot more possibilities. Yeah, I think, you know, very often authors don't realize... Well, I'm I'm not talking about, you know, people who've, who've done a lot of historical romance, but people don't always realize how strictly gender segregated past cultures could be and and that you know that the the, one of the things about you know female same-sex relationships well even male same-sex relationships for that matter is how utterly normal it was for people of the same sex to be in you know cozy intimate situations together and for people not to think it meant anything you know exactly (laughs) like you have this like kind of covering fire where you know people are going to look at two women walking arm in arm down the street and they're going to be like, oh, what nice friends. You yeah. Know? And or, or sharing a bed together. It's like, well, you know, exactly. it, 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 yeah. you do that. <laughs> it's just, it's one of the, oh, we have too many guests. Well, of course these two good friends can bunk up. You know? Yeah, exactly. And and I think you know, not enough is made of that as a, a an enabling mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so this is the first book you've written with a female romantic couple. How is that different from writing your previous characters, other than the social aspects of making it easier for them to get together? This is probably going, you know, veering into the, the gray area around TMI, but um, I discovered I was bi rather late in life. Mm-hmm. And so I don't actually have a lot of experience in dating women. 
and I've read plenty of stuff on the subject, and I was writing romance long before I was, you know, married or sleeping with men, so this is, like, this is one of those things where, you know, learning by, learning by reading versus learning by doing becomes kind of a thing, but I'm not convinced that real-life sex actually leads to better talent in writing about sex. I feel those are very <laughs> separate kind of skills. <laughs> At least I hope so for so many litfic people. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, so there was a little bit of anxiety for me with that because I feel like I don't have a certain sort of expertise or experience. A lot of it is very imaginatory. A lot of it is trying to figure out how to do this in a, in a way that feels authentic to me and in a way that isn't, like, because, because that's not a personal experience, it's a little bit, it makes me feel, oh, I'm going to say it, I'm gonna, it makes me feel like a little bit of a fraud somehow. Like, and of course that's just... That's just the nature of growing up bisexual and not realizing until much later that, you know, that you can be, like, attracted to women as well as men. You know, growing up uh, in the 90s, I knew about lesbians and I knew about gay men, and then the occasional bisexual was so removed from how I felt as a person that it was hard to see myself there. Uh It wasn't until I started reading uh, by characters in romance that I started to actually say, oh my gosh, this feels real familiar. I've had these thoughts before. I've had this exact anxiety. And I started to really think about it. It took me about two years at about, you know, age 35 before I kind of said, hey, I think this might be something that is true about me. And it still feels, it still feels a little new. And it's in that weird, fun space where, you know, truly straight people probably don't spend two years agonizing about this (laughs) but at the same time you know it doesn't really you know like i i'm happily married to a man i intend to remain happily married to a man and so it feels like there's ways in which it has impacted my life and there's ways in which it hasn't the way i like to think of it is that it's like going over a manuscript you've read before and finally seeing all of the little foreshadowings and hints you've been dropping for yourself. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting. So you have a better understanding of the story now, but the story remains essentially as it was. That's a fascinating way to think about it. Some of the foreshadowings pretty heavy-handed. When we got <laughs> married. We got married on Pride weekend in Seattle's gay neighborhood with bridesmaids who were wearing dresses in every color of the rainbow. So looking back, uh-huh. if I went into a story people would be like, "Come on, Olivia." Think about this for a second. Yeah, yeah, but if, if it were a story, then you would have run away with your bridesmaid instead, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but they've made that movie. <laughs> yes, several times, I believe. So in writing queer characters in history, you know, we, we are all immersed in an understanding, if not always a historically accurate one, of what it means to be straight in historic societies. But... What was it like trying to figure out how your characters understood their own lives from a a queer perspective? That is a bit tricky, and I think the best answers I found were were to stick to specifics to make it not a question of, oh my gosh, like, this changes everything about who I am, but to make it like, oh, well, what what does this change? Um, How do I feel about this particular person? So it's not, it's not so much a, oh, I've been lying to everybody the whole time, as a, oh, and then there's more to who I am. Mm-hmm. This, it's, it's additive rather than... Uh, rather than game-changing? <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a little... Sometimes it's game-changing, and I'm playing with this a little bit 
in this in this whole series, each couple is going to have a slightly different experience of this. Some of them, in Ladies' Guide, uh, Lucy has known she's queer for all her life. Mm-hmm. Like, she grew up that way. All her experiences have been with women. That's who she is, and she's always known it. And with Catherine, I put a little bit more of my own kind of experience in there where she's had relationships with men, and she's enjoyed that, you know, except when they were terrible. <laughs> and But she's had, like, crushes on women, and she's had feelings in that direction, but she never really had a chance to examine it until she meets Lucy. And then she kind of has to look back and, and, and reevaluate a little. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for her, it is a very, it is a very kind of um, stop-and-think moment. And it is really, it is, it is kind of a personal part of her journey. And I really wanted to, to put both those things on there without making it like a complete overhaul of who she is or a complete angsty crisis that she kind of resists. Uh-huh. Because... Honestly, I, do, I don't enjoy that kind of book myself, so I wanted to be like, <laughs> like the, the realization is fun, but the guilt and resistance is not very fun for me. So I kept that to a minimum, especially because I didn't feel a lot about that myself. I felt some, you know, mine are like, oh, God, I wish, I wish I'd been smart enough to figure this out earlier, but not, <laughs> not really so much of the self-recrimination for me. So, you know, you, you, you mentioned that, you know, you, you realized that you were bi fairly late in life, sort of like I realized I was asexual fairly late in life. I just thought I was a failed lesbian. Um, <laughs> how do you feel like your work relates to the, you know, the, the quote unquote lesbian literary community? It, you are being published by a mainstream publisher. Mm-hmm. And the sense I get from the people who are talking a lot about your book is that you're you're coming from a community of you know mainstream historic romance readers, and I definitely feel like that's how I ended up here. I started off in mainstream romance. I've been reading Avon for pretty much all my life, uh, so it's a very it's a very kind of comfortable place for me in a lot of ways. Um, I feel super excited to be published by Avon after all this time. It's just kind of so that was absolutely a goal for me. But on the other hand, way back when. I picked up my very first FF romance, uh-huh. and it was a book called Deep, uh, not Deep, no, it was Rule Breaker by Kathy Pegau, uh-huh. and it, yeah, uh, <laughs> lesbian space opera, and I, this was me saying, okay, well, I need to diversify my reading, I've read some MM romance, I should read some FF romance, and I encountered this one, and I'm like, well, this sounds fun, I like space and heists and stuff like that, so I, I went into it kind of expecting that it wouldn't be my jam, and it felt... It felt a little bit like coming home. Hmm. And this was a very unique FF romance because it was a bi heroine who had uh, sex with both her ex-boyfriend and then later the other heroine on the page. So it was very much like kind of carving out that territory and being very bold about that, which is rare in FF romance, I know. Mm-hmm. And, and that part of it really kind of resonated with me and kind of kicked off this whole journey in a very real way. So... So when I started to read lesfic more broadly, I would encounter things like, oh man, the whole toaster oven trope uh, uh, just like <laughs> makes my skin crawl because I know I, the original joke is kind of adorable, <laughs> but the fact that it's become this whole subgenre really kind of makes me feel squicked out a little bit. Well, the, the whole you know myth that that queer people go out to convert straight people, oh, it, it's, it's a like. Mess. <laughs> And then it does, it does like, it kind of, the whole biphobia thing happens, 
Um, I remember having one conversation on Twitter with some other bi writers and reviewers about how there was one particular book that somebody had been reading where it was an FF romance and the heroine had had relationships with men and then the book was treating her relationships with women as like the real relationships, finally, that she got to have. And, and we were talking about how that feels kind of, you know, biphobic to us. And then um, a lesbic reviewer jumped in to say, well, in the lesbic communities on Facebook, they all distrust all of you pretending people, et cetera, et cetera. They just want to have something where women loving women is celebrated and it became this very like tense discussion mm-hmm. it yeah it doesn't always feel like like lesbic is as i guess broad ranging as i kind of want it to be and that's that's me liking to mix genres and that's me liking to mix pairings and that's me essentially liking to to live in those kind of transitional zones yeah uh, both I, as I, a writer and a reader i've had um, uh, discussions about that aspect with people before and and, you know, so much of that, you know, that status quo is embedded in the social purposes that lesbic as a genre was, was born out of. And, Absolutely. And the thing is, you know, maybe we can move past it now. Maybe we don't have to have a, you know, a strict no penises rule in a book that has a yeah. female romance. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and that always, that always felt very strange to me. And I don't know if that's just you know, the latent bisexuality kind of lurking around. I think a lot of the uh, ancient literature that I read, the ancient Greek and Latin stuff, kind of helped a lot in this regard because it's not... Uh, I've read tons of erotic poetry and Sappho in the original and Ovid and all the smuttier Latin <laughs> poets. <laughs> and it's... A lot of it is very... I, would, I wouldn't say queer-friendly or queer, but I would definitely say, like, queer-adjacent, where it's... It doesn't care so much about the actual mechanics unless you're making jokes. Mm-hmm. It cares about the impact of beauty and the power of attraction. And it's really not not that specific all the time on the gender of the person you're being attracted to or playing around with. And there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of myths out there about like the role of aggression, like activity versus passivity in ancient yeah. literature. And some of those are very entrenched in the discourse and others are starting to be undermined and it gets very I, I get very nerdy about this and this may be one of those bits where i'm going off topic so. <laughs> not for me not for me i have done like many blog posts about trying to understand the the classical roman attitude towards sexuality and uh and oh, yeah. i could talk about that for hours believe me <laughs> yeah it's Kind of like every time it feels like every time i read a little bit more about it i just get more confused and puzzled and the thought that the ancient Greeks and Romans were kind of aliens in some particular way. Like, getting to kind of a pre-Christian mindset is just so difficult in some ways. I think that's one of the fun things about trying to write historical fiction from the historic (laughs) point of view is seeing, can we get into that different mindset and then present it to modern readers in a way that they can both appreciate and enjoy it without, without it having to be an exact reflection of the modern experience? Exactly, and that's, I think that's part of the fun, is how do these people, without the language of identity, without the language of, of orientation, behind, yeah. how do they still navigate very familiar obstacles? And maybe they have to, I, I'm a big fan of the idea that people create their own structures when those structures are lacking. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in one of my earlier MF books, uh, I wanted to write about a couple navigating some light BDSM elements, 
in a culture that wouldn't really give them, you know, access to say, you know, a BDSM network of any, mm. of any like appreciable kind. Like it's all very hush hush and occasionally some erotic, erotic engravings slip through, you know. <laughs> so they really kind of have to negotiate it between themselves, which is actually a really great little structure for an erotic romance yeah. because then it, it keeps that focus very tight. Mm-hmm. And so when I approached queer romance, I thought about it in a very similar way, which is all we have to build on are the things we build ourselves. We have to be conscientious of how we're treating a partner. We have to be conscientious of how our actions can impact someone in ways we might not anticipate. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to rethink uh, assumptions a lot. And so in Ladies' Guide, for instance, Catherine comes to realize that her mother actually had a long-standing relationship with a woman that she's thought of as an aunt all her life and she spent years thinking they were just very good friends and then eventually she kind of realizes oh yeah no after my dad died this was her next relationship mm-hmm. and so so in one sense that there is a lineage of queer women in the book and in the other sense it's not necessarily obvious until you start really noticing all the cues mm-hmm and that's something I'm always interested in as well, is this idea of of codes and slightly hidden language. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like spy books, so yes, this is very much <laughs> like, connected to that kind of thing. Spies and mysteries and puzzle solving. How do, you, how do you indicate attraction rather than friendship? How do you cross that particular barrier? Uh, and I really got to have a lot of fun with that kind of thing in, in Ladies' Guide and in the next two books in the series. Yeah, one one of the things that struck me when I started writing historical romance ideas was that it my, I started out feeling like every story was a, oh my God, we are the only ones who have ever felt this, we must reinvent it from scratch type of story. And I realized I didn't want to write those stories. And yeah. that's, that, that's why so much of my... So I've got this this history blog, which is looking at, you know, lesbian-like motifs in history and literature and trying to find, you know, what would people have known about? What would have been part of their cultural background that they could then recognize themselves in so that they don't feel like, you know, this is this strange thing that nobody has ever felt before, but rather, ah, uh, I remember reading a book where somebody had this kind of relationship. Yeah. So you mentioned in passing something about this being a three-book series. Um, is that in progress? Are there any other forthcoming projects that our listeners might be interested in? Oh, yes. Well, so this book is the first in what I'm calling the Feminine Pursuits series. And it's a three-book series of FF historical romances. And it's this first one's 1816, the next one's 1820, and the third's going to be 1824. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still planning out book three. I'm almost done with book two. Oh, good. I get to turn that in later this year. Yeah, book two is, it actually features one of the characters from book one. It's the engraver Agatha Griffin. Between 1816 and 1820, she ends up being widowed. She's trying to run the print house on her own and raise a son, and she meets a lady beekeeper um, <laughs> through a series of minor catastrophes involving a bee swarm. <laughs> a hive where it shouldn't make a hive and it's very much and that's 1820 which is a very exciting year because that was the year when Queen Caroline was on trial for adultery mm. and so it's you know royal scandals and queen bees and it's an epistolary romance and it's a very slow burn it's like friends to lovers and it's been 
such a challenge to write, and I'm so excited about it, and I'm pretty sure it's a mess right now. <laughs> But that's, that's always how I feel at this point in a book, so maybe, maybe it's not as much of a mess as I imagine. But it's definitely, I felt with Ladies Guide, I really kind of challenged myself. Uh-huh. It's so much fun, and I felt like I got so much more out of it than I put in. And so, because I'm not really a person who finds a comfort, a comfort spot and then just camps out there forever, I'm, I'm challenging myself even more in book two. I'm trying to put in more stuff and characters and working it in with uh, a real a real historical background in a way that I have never I have never done before. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff in Ladies Guide was was based on things, but I would you know borrow a historical personage and change one or two details and put them in the in the book and things like that. And that was that's pretty standard for historical romance, mm-hmm. I find, which is really interesting. And it's a nice little distinction between that and historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Like historical fiction, you know, like Hilary Mantel is like, I'm going to do this deep dive of research. I'm going to do primary sources and we're going to stick as close as possible to the narrative as we understand it. And then we're going to make that feel vivid and engaging and alive. And that's an incredible achievement. And then historical romance does something a little bit different where they say, oh my gosh, here is, say, uh, to use one of my favorite recent examples, here's a former spy or no, a former slave during the Civil War who becomes a spy, but because she has a photographic memory, she can glance once at sensitive documents and then recite them later from memory, and it's this very handy skill for a spy. And so she's behind enemy lines, spying on the Confederacy, and historical romance says, wow, that's a great figure, and then they take the details, change the names, and write a story saying, what if you were a person like this? And it's <laughs> yeah, so, simple, so like, that's, skip- that's Alyssa Cole's book, right? <laughs> it is, yes. That's an extraordinary union. Yes. Which is her exquisite Loyal League series. Uh-huh. So freaking good. But I started to notice this pattern more and more as I was working on Ladies Guide and this idea that the historical romance kind of says, Oh, but we don't want we don't want to take that position of authority. We don't want to we don't want to like we know it's going to be a little bit unreal because the way because we have to structure it for the ending. Mm-hmm. And so if it's going to be unreal, we're going to make it definitely unreal so nobody's confused. Yeah. Like, you know, if you wrote a historical romance, and I know that people have done this with, they tried to turn Alex, Alexander Hamilton and Eliza's story into, like, a romance novel, and that's just, eh, that feels weird to me. Whereas if you wrote characters named Schmalexander Schmamilton... <laughs> into a romance novel, suddenly I'm okay with it. Suddenly I'm like, well, you're not pretending this is the real person, so fine. It, it's sort of like the difference between writing original stories and writing uh, real people fanfic. It is. It's exactly like that. It's historical real people fic, and it makes me feel like a voyeur, and I don't enjoy it. <laughs> I, I just want to make, I just want to watch these imaginary people make out, and I don't really <laughs> want the author to be there elbowing me like, you know who this is based on, right? And uh-huh. I'm like, I don't care. Uh-huh. <laughs> people wanted to follow you on social media where can they find you oh i hang out most often on twitter where my handle is o underscore wait w-a-i-t-e mm-hmm. and i'm there a lot it's basically the water cooler for writers and i love giving book recs because i'm also a romance critic and so and i'm a, a former independent bookseller so like tailored recommendations are kind of <laughs> my absolute jam. I love talking books. I love I love finding the right book for the right reader. Not just things that I've loved, but hey, I've heard 
things about this particular book, and I haven't read it, but my friend who likes mystery says X, Y, Z about it, you know, uh-huh. things like that. Yeah, which, that's a great service. Yeah. So uh, I know you've got a website because I found it when I was researching yeah. you. Um, yep, oliviaweek.com. Any, any other places that you, you tend to post a lot? Oh, I am on Instagram. That's mostly museum and travel photos and the occasion, well, more than occasional, puppy photos as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't, I'm new to Instagram. I'm still kind of feeling it out. I'm enjoying it. It's very, it's very useful for me as like a photo archive and I like swimming through other people's photos. And there's a lot of like historical recreations and jewelry artists and knitting artists on Instagram that mm. I find really really kind of kick the brain and the the visual center into into overdrive which is great so mm. my handle there is o underscore wow w o w underscore weight w a i t e uh-huh. the other weights had taken all the <laughs> i'll put links to all those in the show notes thank you olivia for joining us on the lesbian historic motif podcast oh thank you heather this was an absolute pleasure I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 